so I enrolled at Florida State University as an undeclared major, but I knew that I was going to end up a theater major. I knew from the time I was little I wanted to be an actor, but I just never wanted to be associated with theater types. I remember in high school, I wouldn't join the Thespian Society just because I didn't want to be called a thespian. And so I I started Florida State undeclared, but it didn't take long before I decided, no, this is what I'm going to do. I remember my very first acting class. It took place in a classroom underneath the stage. It was the coolest classroom. You had to go down this dark stairwell uh, and then down this long hallway that was always dark. I don't know why they didn't put lights in it, but, but it was always kind of dark and creepy. Uh, and then you'd go into this classroom that was under the stage, and it was, like a, it was like a ballet, a dance studio. And so there were mirrors on the wall and the ballet bar. And, and so I'm, I'm in this acting class my first year, and well, one day I'm down trying to get into the classroom, and the door's locked. And the door's never locked because there are classes in and out Um, all throughout the day, and so this was odd to me. And as my classmates began congregating at the door, we're all looking at each other like, what in the world is going on? Well, out of the dark corner of the hallway, my professor emerged. Now, my professor, he was about 140 pounds and six foot four. He had crazy black hair with just little hints of white and uh, and, um, silver, and uh, and he had perfect posture. He always kind of walked like, I, mean, I don't know if this is perfect, but he would always walk like this. And, and he emerged from the dark corner, which is very creepy because the hallway was a dead end. So that meant that my teacher the whole time was standing in the corner watching us all so confused at why the door was locked. And so when he came out of the corner, he said, today we are going to explore mask. And I have locked the door because I don't want you to enter into the classroom and judge the mask. I need to first explain to you how masks work. And I'm sitting there, again, I wasn't really around theater types growing up. This was my first exposure. I'm thinking, this guy is a fruitcake. And I'm looking at my classmates thinking they've got to be thinking the same thing, but they weren't. They were like people who loved to be called thespians. So they were like shaking their heads like, oh, yes, this is so exciting. And so he began to explain what we were going to be doing that day. And he said, what we're going to do is we're going to go in the classroom, and there's masks all laid out on the floor. And we are not to choose a mask. We are to wait until the mask chooses us. And so uh, once we had chosen our mask, we were to go sit in front of the mirror. And he said, I want you to look at yourself, not the mask. I want you to look at you. I want you to see deep inside your soul. And once you have done that, then you can look in the mirror at the reflection of the mask. And once you've seen deep inside the soul of the mask, You can look back at yourself and then back at the mask and back at yourself and back at the mask. And he he said you needed to do that until you knew the time was right for you to put the mask on and to tell the mask story. Y'all, I thought this was some heebie-jeebie and I did not know what I was gonna do. And so, um, you know, I'm looking around and I'm getting no validation from my classmates. They were all really into it. We walk into the classroom and, you know, I'm trying to look like, at the mask and, and wait for them to call my name and none of them did and, and after an appropriate amount of time I thought of looking um, I decided I, I picked up a mask and I walked over to the mirror and I sat down and I looked deep into my eyes and I didn't really see anything and then I looked deep into the eyes of the mask and still didn't see anything and, but as I'm sitting there I'm thinking I, I gotta do something like my whole class 
is, is into this and I'm gonna stand out and I'm gonna get in trouble and they're gonna kick me out of the program. And, and so I remember sitting there and my main thought in my head was just, just do something, just do something, just do something, just do something. And so finally, I put the mask on and this is what I did. And I began to run around the classroom and really my throat started to constrict and I couldn't breathe and I was running around the classroom doing that awful scream and I, I was looking at my classmates and they were just kind of pushing me away or, or trying to escape me and I'm, I'm looking at them and I'm grabbing them and I'm pleading with them saying, help me. And nobody would help me. And so I ran over to the ballet bar on the wall and I grabbed hold of it and I let out a blood curdling scream and then I pulled the ballet bar out of the concrete wall, fell to the ground, tears streaming streaming down my face, and I hurled the mask off. My professor walked over to me and knelt down and said, thank you. That was beautiful. Thank you for telling that story. So this morning we're going to talk about shame. Shame is what I feel when I tell you that story and I think about all the money my parents spent on my education. (laughs) We spent an entire class period one time pretending to be trees. An hour. Just like that. Shame, in all seriousness, is really difficult to talk about because we're ashamed of our shame. We like the band Mumford and Sons, and like Macbeth, whom they quote, often look up to the heavens and scream out, stars, hide your fires. Let not light see my dark and deep desires. We don't want to look at shame. We don't want to even see it. We don't want to know it. We don't want anyone else to know it. And so oftentimes, we don't talk about it. Also, shame often hides in guilt's shadow. So sometimes when we're discussing guilt, really shame is the culprit. You can see kind of the difference between guilt and shame beautifully illustrated in Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter. I don't know if you had to read it in high school. I did, and I actually really enjoyed it. It was one of the ones I actually read. And and if you remember the story, Hester Prynne starts off walking up the scaffolding with uh, an infant in her arms and a scarlet A pinned to her blouse. You see, we learn that this woman had come to the new world in the late 1600s ahead of her husband to kind of set up a new life for them. And while her husband was still off in England settling affairs, she became pregnant. Well, as punishment for her sin and because she wouldn't reveal the identity of her fellow sinner, she was forced to wear a scarlet letter everywhere she went. Now, was Hester Prynne guilty? Yes, her husband was across the ocean. And the message of Jesus to her was always, there is forgiveness. But that's not what the story is about. The story is about her shame, what she carried around publicly. But it's also about the shame of her unnamed lover, the Reverend Dimsdale, who no one knew it was him, but he still walked around with a scarlet letter on his chest. It was just one he had carved himself. And so this morning, some of you have experienced public shame. But I would guess that all of us have experienced private shame. 
And there's good news this morning. God's message to us, oh, we can find it in Isaiah 54, 4, where it says, do not be afraid. You will not be shamed. Do not hear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember it no more. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. That will only offer hope to us if we are able to name our shame. And we have to name our shame apart from our guilt. You see, guilt is what you feel when you do something wrong. But shame is what you feel when you think you are something wrong. So guilt says, I'm sorry I made a mistake. Shame says, I'm sorry I am a mistake. So I invite you this morning to look at shame. And specifically, to ask the Holy Spirit to show you where your shame is. We're going to look at a very familiar passage. We're going to look at Genesis 3, the fall. Um, We often use this text to go and understand greater um, the theology behind original sin. But today, let's take this text and ask the Spirit to reveal to us about our original shame. So let's read that together. We're going to start actually in the second chapter of Genesis, verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened And they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Pray with me. Father, You want to speak to your children. You want them to know the truth. And so I pray that you would do that this morning. I pray that I would not get in the way. In Jesus' name, amen. So, how does shame start? Let's start there. Well, we can see very clearly that once Adam and Eve had disobeyed, once they had sinned, they felt shame. It says their eyes were open, they saw that they were naked. Um, And they began to cover themselves. So, shame follows sin. 
But I also think we get a, a clue that shame also precedes sin. Did you hear how Satan just slyly put in there that Adam and Eve weren't good the way they were? He made them believe that, you know what? You're not quite there. You're not really as great as you could be. And so in that lie, there's a sense of shame. Like I'm unworthy. I'm not how I should be. If you don't have the Jesus Storybook Bible and, and you don't have kids, you still should get it because it's a great Bible. And in, her, in the Bible written by Sally Lloyd-Jones, she titles this chapter The Terrible Lie. And she says that the terrible lie came into the world that day. It would never leave. It would live on in every human heart, whispering to every one of God's children, God doesn't love me. So yes, we feel shame after we sin. But oftentimes, we feel shame before we sin as well. Think about it. Think about the times that you've sinned and you've brought on um, suffering to yourself or to your family. And you feel the guilt of that. And you start to feel shame like I'm such a mess up. What do we often run back to to make us feel better? Whatever shameful sin we did. So that shame is kind of like a circle. We go around and around and around. So our initial response to shame is to sin. But how else do we respond to shame? What I've loved about studying this passage is that in this small little story, we see how our first parents responded to shame, and it's the same way you and I respond to shame today, thousands and thousands of years later. What's the first thing they do? They make a covering for themselves. They, they look at one another and they say, I don't, I don't like you to see me like this. So I'm going to decide what I'm going to allow you to see. I'm going I'm to present to you only what I want you to know about me. Essentially, they began to put on a mask. They began to manipulate their identity. I see this all the time working with teenagers. It's been my privilege uh, to be the youth pastor here for the past five years. And as I, was, as I was thinking of ways to kind of help us see the different masks we wear, I started thinking about our teenagers. So I'm going to share with you some masks that I see often in my ministry. But don't just not listen and think, oh, that's just teenagers, because I think these are the same masks that you and I wear. So as I, as I tell you these, as I, as I give you specifics of what I see in youth ministry Ask the Holy Spirit to show you what mask you are wearing. First one I see a lot is the good girl. She's successful and dependable. You can always count on her. And she rarely shows anger and resentment. No matter what people are doing to her, she just smiles and said, oh, it's okay. Don't worry about it. It's okay. I I was uh, at a conference once and this counselor addressed this room uh, full of, of people. And he said, I challenge you to dislodge low self-esteem from excellent grades, almost perfect behavior, and a servant's heart, and you will find it will not budge. Sarah Jane, my counterpart in youth ministry, uh, she says often that as a young child, she learned very early, if you were good, no one asked you questions about your heart. The other mask that I often see is the laid-back guy, apathetic, just chill, nothing bothers me, I'm just so cool. 
He doesn't get excited about anything. He doesn't desire anything too much. He's simply satisfied experiencing risk and adventure through the safety of technology. Why? Why does he settle for that? Because somewhere he has heard, you don't have what it takes. CNN just recently put out an article talking about how porn and video games have emasculated men. And what what a perfect opportunity for the guy who thinks he doesn't have what it takes. You can pursue a girl that will never tell you no, and you can fight an enemy that will never draw blood. But he hides behind, I don't don't care, I don't need anything, I'm I'm cool. Then, uh, there's the party girl. And she's interesting because she comes across as shameless. And you just say, wow, that, that person has no shame. But truthfully, shamelessness is one of the best covers of shame. She's often biting and sarcastic, really funny. You kind of want to be around her because you never know what she's going to do. But almost every time that I've been able to move further into a story of someone who comes across this way, I find a time in their life where they were made to feel really dirty. And lastly, my favorite one is the theologian, the Bible scholar. And he takes his Bible and he uses it as a fig leaf. He often studies systematic theology and memorizes scripture for the sole purpose of applying spiritual truths to other people's lives, but very rarely to their own. This is the person that will flippantly quote Romans 8.28 when you're suffering. This person believes that if I just say the scripture enough, and if I just say Jesus' name enough, everything will be fixed. But their real fear is that it it won't. So we make coverings for ourselves. That's what we do with shame, to try to keep ourselves from being known by other people. But Keller makes an interesting point. Keller's a, a, a preacher from Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. He says that when shame entered in, not only did it ruin the relationships between people, but that it was the ruin of our psychological relationship to ourselves. That we could no longer see ourselves clearly. That's when self-deception crept in. And you know that you're self-deceived. I remember when I got my first headshots in college, which is what you have to have as an actor. It's an 8 by 10 very close-up of your face. And I was so excited about my headshots. And I, I, had, I had done one of those crazy 24-hour diets. I think I had gone to the tanning bed. I maybe had my eyeballs plucked. I don't know. But I, had, I was feeling really good about myself. And this was back when we didn't have digital stuff. So, so I had to wait a week after the photos were taken. And I could not wait. And I remember getting the photos and opening that envelope and being so disappointed that what I saw in that huge 8x10 close-up was me. Somehow, in that week of waiting for the photos, I had imagined in my head that I was going to look like Brad Pitt. I really had thought that's what it was going to look like. And so when I looked at myself, I was like, that, that's not nearly as attractive as I thought I was going to be. But we, don't, we all do it. You do it. You try on clothes. You have your best outfit, the outfit that you feel so good in. You strut around when you're wearing that outfit. You check out yourself in every mirror or glass uh, that you can. And when you get home and you felt so good about yourself and you start undressing, you realize, wow, I'm not nearly as attractive as I thought I was. We all do that. We are self-deceived. We don't want to really know ourselves. And the mask that we choose to wear, we do at some point start believing that that's who we are. So that's the first, so the first thing is um, shame. What we do with shame is we begin to sin. 
Second thing we do with shame is we try to cover ourselves from others and from ourselves. The third thing is we hide. It's interesting to me that the text says, Adam and Eve then heard the sound of the Lord God walking. Where was he? I mean, the last, you know, one of the things they heard after they were created was, you are very good. You are very good. And then Satan came in there and started saying, you're not as good as you think. You're not okay the way you are. And where was God? Why could they not hear him? See, that's what happens when we stop allowing God to define us. When we stop allowing him to give us worth, we feel shame. And that's what happened. And so he was always there. It wasn't like God became omnipresent after the fall. He was there, but they stopped listening to him. And so when they finally heard him again, they were terrified. All of a sudden, the sound of the voice who told them, you are beautiful and you are good, all of a sudden, that voice terrified them. So they ran and hid. And we do the same thing. I was thinking, though, how do we hide? Because we don't go and hide under a bush or in a tree. I think we hide in our activities, in our overindulgences and things. Think about it. We over-medicate. We overeat. We overexercise, we overspend, we overcommit. All of that stuff, all of those distractions are merely to keep us so busy that we can't hear the still, small voice of God. Because we're terrified if we get still long enough, he will call our name. And so we busy ourselves. Sometimes we even busy ourselves with good things. So, We respond to shame by sinning. We respond to shame by covering ourselves up. We respond to shame by hiding, numbing ourselves with distractions. And lastly, we blame. I love Adam's response when he was caught. He says, the woman you put here with me, she did it. Go ahead, take her, take her, throw her to hell. How crazy is that? He had just sang this beautiful love song to her. They had probably, you know, just made love, and all of a sudden he's saying, throw her to hell. So he blamed her, but then he also blamed God. He said, the woman you gave me. When we feel shame, don't you find yourself saying, God, why did you make me this way? If you really loved me, you would change me. You can fix this. It's your fault. I suspect you're feeling a little bit exposed right now, and I'm praying that the Holy Spirit is stripping away your fig leaves. But not so that you will sit here feeling exposed in shame, but so that you may be redressed in hope. And this is the good part. What does God do with our shame? How does God respond to our shame? He seeks us in our shame. He comes after us. God had every right as the divine creator, as the holy one, to completely destroy Adam and Eve for their disobedience. He had the right to say, sinner, come and stand before me. How dare you? 
But what does the text say? The text says he goes looking for them. And he asks a question. Where are you? What do questions do in relationship? They draw them in. They continue. So with our shame, God goes out looking for us and he's begging and he's pleading with us. He's saying, trust me again with your shame. Let me speak to you again. I'm not going to yell and berate you. I want you to bring your shame to me. So God responds to our shame by going out and seeking us and asking us questions that invite us to trust him again. This is beautifully illustrated in the story of the good Samaritan, not the good Samaritan, of the Samaritan woman at the well found in John 4. If you haven't read Love Walked Among Us by Paul Miller, you should read it. And he paints this story so beautifully. But he, he says what's going on there is there's this woman in the middle of the day at the well alone. She's not at the well in the morning with all the other ladies or in the evening. She is alone, which means she's ashamed woman. And Jesus approaches her and says, can you give me a drink? He asks her a question. He invites her to dialogue. And she, being the kind of woman who is comfortable with men, which if you don't know, you'll find out in just a second, she says, she looks at him and says, how can you ask me for a drink? You are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. We don't interact together. And not only that, you're a man and I'm a woman. And Jesus continues to dialogue with this woman. And, and, and you can kind of get this sense Uh, that this woman is being somewhat flirtatious. And Jesus keeps moving towards her. And at one point, Jesus says, now go get your husband. All of a sudden, the woman's long-winded answers to Jesus, Jesus, her her responses to him become very short. And she just says, I do not have a husband. He's caught her in her shame. And she doesn't want to continue talking to him. But instead of letting her run and hide, Jesus moves more towards her. And he says, I know. I know you have five husbands and the man you are now living with is not your husband. I know. I knew that before I even started talking to you. God knew what Adam and Eve had done. He knew. He was there. So as he moves through the garden and seeks them out, He is not trying to find out what happened. He's trying to say, come and bring it to me. I was there. Let me show you that I was there. That time when you felt rejected and hurt and used, I was there. Come bring it to me. Bring the shame to me. That time you did that, yeah, I was there. What's amazing about this story with this woman is that she leaves there feeling seen and loved. What's she do? She goes to the town and she says, you've got to come meet this man who told me everything I ever did. You've got to come see him. He told me everything I ever did and he still loved me. He still wants me. Jesus revealed his true identity to this woman, that he was the Messiah. She was a sassy, promiscuous Samaritan woman, and besides Jesus' trial, that's the only time he explicitly told anyone who he was. 
So Jesus, or so God seeks us out in our shame. Another thing he does is he takes our blame. Adam accuses God for the fall. And God remains silent. He doesn't answer the accusation. And in Jesus Christ, we see the ultimate silence. As God incarnate was being blamed and accused and ridiculed and mocked and ultimately being crucified, he stayed silent. As it was foretold in Isaiah 53, he did not open his mouth like a lamb being led to the slaughter. As a sheep is before his shears is silent, so the Son of Man did not open his mouth. So when we blame, he remains silent. And hanging on the cross, he breaks the silence to say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So God seeks us in our shame. He bears the blame of our shame on the, shame on the cross without defending himself. And lastly, he covers us. In verse 21 of Genesis 3, it says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve. The truth is, after the fall, it's not safe for us to be exposed. We can't really tell each other everything about ourselves. It's not safe to move towards people in relationship because we will be hurt. But God says, I'm going to clothe you. And as he's ripping apart that animal with which he's going to cover Adam and Eve, in his mind he is realizing that one day he too will have to be ripped apart. That as Jesus Christ is spread across the cross, that that is the only thing powerful enough. That is the only covering power enough to cover our shame. The, um, Hebrews 12.2 is one of my favorite verses and it says, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our, of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. If you're feeling shame, think about that verse. Jesus endured shame, why? For the joy set before him. What was the one thing that Jesus did not have? He had all the power, he had all the glory, he had perfect union with the Father and the Holy Spirit. What did he not have? He did not have us. He did not have you and he did not have me. And so he endured all of that on the cross to yell forever, you are worthy. You are enough. You are good enough for me to lay down my life for. You have tremendous value and worth. Yesterday I was um, in a little self-loathing place, which is what I normally get before uh, preaching. And I, I wrote a buddy, my buddy Eric, and, and I said, I, I'm making this all about me. And I'm making this all about my performance. And uh, he texted me this. Part of it is about you. And you're a great communicator. I pray you enjoy being as good as you are. 
Get out there and strut. You have the most powerful message in the universe, the gospel, and the truth preaches. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, I am worthy to proclaim this message to you. And you are worthy too. Let me tell you what was happening in college with the mask. I had just graduated from high school and my whole world was disrupted. My view of God was shattered. My view of myself was shattered. Everything I had relied on to give me worth and security was taken away. My goodness, the reputation that I had, the fact that I was Christian of the year, all of that was where I put all my worth. And when God allowed that to be completely disrupted, I didn't know what to do. So I just went around playing the part, smiling and acting like God does work good for those who love him. And then I smiled and I put on a happy face and I did my Christian duty. But that day in that classroom, it wasn't the mask story that I was telling. When I put the mask on, I finally felt free to be me. And at that point, I was a confused and hurt and lonely, and really sad boy. And the mask allowed me to show that. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we do not have a cheap plastic mask. We have the righteousness of Christ. And I'm so glad it's all about shame's remedy, grace. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are seeking us now. I, I feel you're, you're seeking me now. And I pray, Lord, that in these next moments that we do not distract ourselves or numb ourselves, but that we just sit and we wait to hear your words. We need it, Father. So by your Spirit... And by looking and fixing our eyes on Jesus, tell us the truth about ourselves. Thank you for providing a covering for us that frees us up to be truthful and to move towards people because we're not exposed. We're covered with your righteousness. May today be the day that we all believe that more fully. In Jesus' name, amen. We're setting aside a few minutes towards the end of this service um, just to give you space and time. Because our nature, when we encounter shame, is to try to run and hide, try to cover it up, try to distract ourselves. And so during these next two songs, you're invited to just kind of sit there and listen, ask the Lord to speak. Hopefully, some of your shame he's brought to the surface and hopefully there's a place you can go and share that with a, with a spouse or a friend. Some of you have never seen the cross as anything but freeing you of your guilt. You have never seen it as the place where you're also cleansed from your shame and made beautiful. So I, I asked uh, Maggie Moore and the children's ministry team, which Kim Johnson, I think, cut them all out for us. But those fig leaves in your program, um, that's for you. And maybe there's something that you think like, I'm wearing this. Or this is the shame that I'm covering up. And maybe you need the experience of coming down and just setting it at the cross. You don't have to. 
But during these next two songs, this is your space. If you wanna go kneel at the cross, if you wanna sing along, this is time for you to allow the spirit to tell you the truth that you are worthy. So let's worship together.